So we are in the third week of four weeks of this series that we're calling How to Be Rich. We started this whole series with me trying to convince you of something you don't want to believe. And that is that you are rich, right? Now, we like to believe that about other people, but we don't like to believe it about ourselves. And so we talked in the first week about the ways we can know that we're rich. And we really talked about it through problems that rich people have, like denial of the fact that they're rich and dependence upon their stuff, trusting in that and never being content. We talked about this fascination in our society with new and better and more and upgrading, right? And that we kind of said that if you've ever traded in a car that's working perfectly well for a new car and paid more money, you're probably, you don't want to even say it. Y'all are having rich person problem number one this morning. Or if you've ever stood in a full closet and said, I have absolutely nothing to wear, you're rich. I heard yesterday we were uh, having a conversation with uh, one of one of Eli's friends spent the night Friday night and his dad picked him up and said he had been by Sam's early in the morning because he liked to get there early before the crowds got there. And he got there around seven o'clock yesterday morning and there was a line out the door around the corner. He said, what? He said, I'm used to the lines at the register. All the Sam's people get an amen there, right? He said, well, what in the world? So he said, what's going on? And he said, oh, iPhones are $100 off today. They were talking on their iPhone while they were getting a new one. If you're upgrading an iPhone, talking on it before you upgrade it, then you're probably rich, right? Now, y'all don't mind that one. Yeah, all those rich young kids getting all their iPhones. Last week we talked about, so if we're rich, we ought to be good at it. And we talked about the why and the how. If you remember, we we talked about this concept of doing for others, but what Christ has done for us. And that our generosity, our generous living flows or comes or is a result of God's extravagant generosity towards us. That God's extravagant generosity towards us compels us to be extravagantly generous to others. And then we, we talked about the, the difference between the golden rule, which you know the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the platinum rule that we introduced last week, which is do unto others as Christ has done for you. Here's what I want you to see this morning. And we're going to look at this in a passage of Scripture from the book of Luke. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3. What I want you to see this morning, that extravagantly generous living is not an add-on or an extra part of living for Jesus. That extravagant giving, extravagantly generous living is a requirement. It is a fundamental aspect of living for Jesus. And we're going to do that not through Jesus' teaching, but through the guy that came before Jesus. Now, when I was growing up, Luke was my favorite gospel. And here's why. I am a linear thinker. 
You know what a linear thinker is, right? From A to B to C to D. When I was in school and they asked us to outline something, I could give them the best outline that you have ever seen. I had, you, you some of you, some of this is going to bring back bad memories, but you remember you had Roman numerals to start, you know, I, 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 V, right? Then after that, you went to the A's and the B's, and then you went to the, the numerals, one, twos. I had lowercase double A's. My outline was so detailed. I'm a linear thinker, and we know from Scripture that Luke is a linear thinker because he is the researcher of the Gospels. You have John, who's kind of the theologian, the stream of conscious writer who has a theological perspective and is writing to teach about the theology of what is happening. And then you have Luke who tells us in the very beginning that he set out to write a well-ordered account of all that had happened. And most scholars think that he took resources, including probably Matthew and Mark. He took the resources that they were built on. There's this supposed, um, nobody's ever found it, but there's a supposed kind of uh, book of sayings of Jesus. He took that. He interviewed. Most people think that the reason his account of the birth of Jesus is so detailed is because he interviewed Mary, perhaps, or one of the relatives and got a detailed account. Luke goes about to be an investigative reporter and to write everything he can about the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, he introduces us To the ministry of a man who would be the appetizer, the forerunner, the one who would come before, the one that was the opening act, the the one that would prepare the people for what was going to happen. In fact, you know who this is, right? Who is it? It's John the Baptist, right? Now, what do you know about John the Baptist? I got lots of mumbles there, all right. What do you know about John the Baptist? Somebody loudly tell me. Nazarene? Nazarite, yeah. Huh? He baptized with water. Related to Christ. What did he look like? Hippie. Wow. He's one that if he walked in this building right now, heads would turn. He did not have a high regard for personal hygiene, by the best we can tell. What do you eat? Locust and honey. Woo! Man, that's good food right there. Amen? Some of y'all want to have that for lunch today? We can, we can fix that up, right? Some of y'all are thinking, boy, I can't wait till those 12-year cicadas come out. Get me some good John the Baptist dinner. So he's a little out there. Would you agree with that? little out there, a little different. He, he wore animal skins, walked around in the wilderness calling people to repent. He uh, was a guy that was related to Jesus. His birth was not as miraculous as Jesus, but it was miraculous in a way that many births in the Old Testament were. His mom and dad were too old. They couldn't conceive. And then God says, you're going to have one. And he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one that is, uh, in modern terms, he was the hype man for Jesus. He's the one that got everybody prepared that God was about to do something. He goes out and begins to proclaim that God's about to really do something and you need to get ready for that. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, it says it this way. Now, I want you to, first of all, just notice in in verse 1, even as I read this or if you're looking at it, the detail that Luke goes to to show the way it happened. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Aturia and Traconius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, just so you know, that, that list of names doesn't mean a thing to us. But in their language, in their day, they would have said, oh, that's like 1973. Now, you realize it wasn't 1973, right? It's a long time ago. But in their minds, it's like saying this was in the midst of the Watergate scandal. Or this is around the time the Berlin Wall fell. He was pinpointing in history where this happens. And it says... The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, and he went into all the country around Jordan, preaching baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. There was a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. People started to get curious. John was the kind of guy, you didn't go by yourself. You went with others and you kind of stood back because you were scared what would happen if he saw you. I mean, John's not the most seeker-sensitive preacher that has ever existed. He's not a touchy-feely kind of guy. He's not a preacher that's going to make you feel good about who you are. In fact, his goal was kind of the opposite. Look at verse 7. So the crowds are coming out. They're coming to be baptized by him. And so these are people that are interested. These are people that are thinking about it. These are people that want to be a part of his ministry. And he looks at them and the first thing he says is, You brood of vipers. Boy, isn't that fun? What if we started doing that here at the church? We had guests come in. Welcome, you brood of vipers. Come have a seat with us. Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He says, listen, I don't care who your dad is. I don't care if you're part of the Jewish people. I don't care if you think you are in line with God. Show me the fruit. For I tell you that out of these stones, this would have offended them like you wouldn't believe. God can raise up children of Abraham. They thought they were special people. They thought they were God's anointed and they were God's chosen people, but they had for. They had gone away from what God intended them to do. And John is telling them, if you don't do your job, God will raise up new ones from the ground and you will lose your privilege. In fact, in verse 9, he tells us the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a touchy-feely kind of sermon. Some of you are like, this is what I grew up with. Come on, preach it. So when he gets through with his good old-fashioned Baptist hellfire and brimstone sermon. I mean, he is Baptist, right? Well, not exactly, but it's the idea. Verse 10, they look at him and they say, what do we do? So John says to him, listen, if, if you want to show me, if you want to be ready for what God's about to do, if, if you want to 
to, to, to prepare your hearts for what's about to happen. If, you're, if you want to be in a position that when God begins to move, you are a part of it and you see it and you're not left behind, then you need to show some fruit of your relationship with the Lord. You need to prove that you are there. Now, again, this doesn't mean that he is asking them to earn anything. He's just saying, let me see evidence of the change that has supposedly happened in your life. Let me see evidence of the fact that you are a part of God's chosen people. Verse 10, he says, the crowd looks at him and says, what do we do? And John answered in verse 11. If you've got two Cokes, share with the one who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. And they would have, uh, they would have been okay with the first, but the second would have been like over the line. And so John says, if you've got two, how many, how many Cokes do you generally need? Well, you say, well, it depends on what shoes I'm wearing. I've got to have different coats. How many coats do you generally need? One. So if you got two, you know what you got? More than you need. He says, if you got it, share. Now, now, let me just say real quickly, these people were not expecting a kindergarten answer from John. They were expecting a theological discussion because their their world was filled with theological discussions about how to please God, how to live for God, how to work for God, and how many steps to take on the Sabbath, and, and, and how you lived amongst a group of people, the Romans, and it was time to overthrow the Roman government. They were expecting something theological or political, and he says, share. Like you tell your four-year-old. And then he says, and if you've got any extra food, do the same. Now, we have no concept of the scandal that would have been to them. Do you know why we have no concept? It's because most of you, when you leave here today and drive home, now not, not all of you, because some of you live right over here, but many of you will pass today, or at least this week, you will pass more food than these people saw in a lifetime. I saw something this week that, that uh, calculated um, the average American diet should be around 2,000 calories. I don't know if you're a calorie counter. If you're trying to lose weight, it may be less. If you're trying to gain weight, maybe more. Not per meal, no, Glenn. <laughs> Although there are some of those out there. I knew it was Glenn. I knew he was getting on me there. Here's the thing I saw. The average... Jewish person of Jesus' day, they were lucky to get a thousand calories in a day. And by modern standards, almost every one of them would be malnourished. I mean, just think about this. From what we can see, the Son of God probably went to bed many nights with his stomach growling. And so for them... They didn't have food that kept. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have coolers. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have the ability to save food. So their dinners consisted mainly of one thing. Grains. Breads. If you were wealthy, really wealthy, you might get meat. And you every once in a while you might get vegetables. But from what I know of the Holy Land, from what I know of that area during the time of Jesus, it wasn't easy to grow vegetables. They didn't have gardens out in the backyard. And so when he says to them in their day, if you got extra grain, you know what you did with it? You kept it because you didn't know if next week you were going to have any grain. And so you stored it to take care of yourself. And he says, if you've got extra food, share it. 
What, what, what kind of fruit do you want us to produce, John? What, what do you mean? What kind of fruit do we have? What I mean, John says, fundamentally showing that you are following what God intends for you is that if you've got extra, you give. Verse 12. There were two other groups of people that were there. and One were the tax collectors. Now, if you've read the New Testament, what, what's the general view of tax collectors? Boo, right? There were two bad groups of people in the New Testament, according to the general public. Not Jesus gets on the Pharisees more than anybody else, but in the general public, there were two groups of people that were bad. There were tax collectors and there were sinners. And to tell you how people thought of tax collectors, sinners did not want to associate with them. Now, we think that um, people today have a negative impression of the Internal Revenue Service. And perhaps you do. You know, when I do, every year when I fill out that tax form. But that's nothing compared to the way people felt about tax collectors of Jesus' day. Tax collectors come to him and say, teacher, what should we do? John looks at them and says, be kind and generous to people. Don't collect any more than you're required to. (laughs) Wait a minute, John. Um, That's how we make our money. Don't collect any more we have to. What we have to is what we have to give to the government. If I don't collect any more than I have to, I don't make any money. John's words to them basically are collect what is just, not what you can justify. Do what is just, not what you can justify. Then some soldiers came to him. Now, Soldiers are, we don't know if that's temple guards, we don't know if that's the Romans, because around this day and time, Romans would have been around, they would have come around, they would have, they would have, uh, at this time, there was this rash of people claiming to be the Messiah, and every time there was somebody that claimed to be the Messiah, they got a group of people together, the Romans had to go squash it and uh, disperse them and make them feel enough pain that they quit doing it, because they didn't want any uprising in the Jewish community, and so perhaps these are Roman soldiers that are there checking out what's happening, maybe it's temple guards there checking out. But either way, they're soldiers and they say, what should we do? And he replies, don't extort money. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with what you pay or what you're paid. He basically says, again, don't do what you can. Do what's right. So John is asked the question by three different groups of people, normal kind of onlookers, tax collectors, and by those who are soldiers. And the question that he's basically asked is, all right, John, you say that we have to prove, that we have to show, that we have to demonstrate fruit, that we are a part of the kingdom of God, that we are preparing for what God is going to do, that we're ready for what God is going to do. Now, obviously, there's some difference in pre-Jesus and for us of us that are post-Jesus, that are after Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus would say the same kind of things, that you must show, you must demonstrate that you are following me. And so they ask the question of John, what shows we are following? you and John's basic response is that you are people who live generously among those around you in fact he kind of gives this this understanding that if we're going to live as the Lord has called us to live we must provide for those who need provision and protect those who need protection 
And I believe that what happened after Jesus came, and John's going to be in a minute, they're going to say, are you the Messiah? Are you it? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And John says, no, 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 no. I'm the forerunner. I'm the pre-meal. I'm the appetizer. There is one coming after me. I am not worthy to even loosen the straps of his sandals. But John's message to the people here would become the message to the people that would follow Jesus. When we get to the New Testament and we find ourselves in the book of Acts, and I mentioned this last week, what we discover is that the first church, the first century church, took seriously these commands about generous, open-handed living. And as a result, it says that people were impressed, curious, overwhelmed by their generosity. And the Lord added to their number every day. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the reality of the fact that most of us in this room have more than we need. And a pretty good definition of richness, of being rich, is having more than you need. And if we're going to be rich, we might as well be good at it. And what we see from Scripture is that in order to be good at it, we have to lead with generosity. We have to be a people that understand that God has been generous to us and we need to do that for our community. But I just want you to see four things out of that that happen when we live a generous life. And the reason that it's such an important thing for us to be generous with our time, with our talents, with our money, with all that we have, I want you to see the importance of us being good at being rich. And the first thing that happens is that our generosity, when we properly do what God has called us to do in generosity, it points people to God. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching and he says to them, so let your light shine before men that they see your good works and talk about how great of a guy you are. Is that what it says? They see your good works and they give praise to your father who is in Heaven, that part of what we're doing is we're generously living in order that others may see how great our God is. And it points people to God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't selfish givers out there because we've all encountered people that do something for you and then remind you about it on a regular basis. Remember last week I got your lunch? That was nice, wasn't it? You remember that year I got what I got you for what was that what was, what was that I got you for Christmas that oh yeah that really nice gift I got you But in general if we're living for the Lord our generosity ought to point people to him Se- Secondly our generous generosity is a sample of Jesus Christ our savior I walked into Publix yesterday I had all four of my kids with me Susan was up here getting ready for the women's event. I had all four kids. You want to talk about bravery, walking into a grocery store with four kids. Some of you are some of you need to take your blood pressure medicine just because I mentioned it, all right? I got it. There we go. And I walked in and Publix yesterday was sample day. Right? And you know what the first sample I came across? They had raspberry cake, which I was all right, with walked right next to it. They apparently do a full Thanksgiving meal at the holidays if you want it, and they had samples of it. Would you like a little dress? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about some? Yeah, that turkey would be good. Uh, some yes, cranberry. Oh, mashed potatoes. Yeah, a little roll. Yes. And as you walked around the store, they had samples everywhere. Now, it, it, let me just be real. Honest. It wasn't Sam's level samples. 
You know what I'm talking about. How many of you like the Sam samples, right? You know what I do with the Sam samples? I decide I need to have uh, in-depth theological conversations with people around the Sam samples table. And if I need to partake of the samples a couple of times in order to do that, then that's... None of you have ever had one of those samples at Sam's that was so good. You walked around for a minute and came back and grazed back by and got you a second sample, did you? Some of y'all think less of your pastor now. But why do they put samples out? What's the point of the sample? To buy the big thing, right? When I'm at Sam's and they pull out the cheesecake samples... They happen to be standing right next to, and what do they always say? These are right on the aisle, about halfway down on the right. Because the point of the sample is for you to partake of the whole. Our generosity is to be a sample for people to partake of our Savior. We are never more like Jesus than when we're selflessly giving. Also, our generosity should go the extra mile to show God's love. In that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks to them and says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them the extra mile. We ought to want to go above and beyond, do whatever we can to show the love of God. And here's the last thing, and then we're going to talk for just a second about opportunities coming up and we'll be done. Our generosity will glorify God through His church. It will glorify God through His church. We exist here at First Baptist Church, Goodlettsville, to glorify God. That's the first thing it says. We walk out this door, any of these doors back here, and you look on that wall out there, it says, we exist to glorify God. That's number one, A1 priority is glorifying God. Now, there are other ways that we do that, but one of the greatest ways we do that is by giving of ourselves generously and selflessly. Our generosity will glorify God through His church. The point of this whole series of messages that we're going to finish next week is that whether you want to admit it or not, whether you feel like it or not, the truth is most of us, if not all of us in this room, are rich. And God has given you extra. God has given you more than you need in order to bless someone else. It is not for you to hoard or to keep. There is nowhere in Scripture it teaches you to hoard or to keep it. It teaches you to give it and be generous with it. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to call us as a church and I'm going to call you as an individual to practice being rich. Whether you feel like it or not. And the first time is, and I saw some of you have already done this, there are boxes already out there, is next week is an opportunity. It's Operation Christmas Child. The shoe boxes are here. We have shoe boxes out there. If we run out of those out there, we've got some more in the back. We've got plenty of shoe boxes for you. Take a shoe box, fill a shoe box, bring it back to us. If you got questions about it, call us, email us, grab us in the hallway, ask us. Your gift of a shoe box will significantly bless someone else. Now, I'm not going to name names here, but I got an email this week that told me that last week they told somebody before service they were not doing a shoebox. And then they said, and preacher, you had to go and preach on it. 
Now, I don't know where you are in the sign. I don't know if you've ever done one. If you've never done one, just do it one time. If you've done it every year, don't let this be the year you're like, ah, just not doing that this year. I want everybody that's in this room to pack a shoebox. Not because it does anything for us. We get no benefit from it other than the glory of God being shown among the nations. And then here's the second thing. December 14th, we're going to have a giving extravaganza. And here's what that is. Some of you look confused when I mentioned this last week. All right. So let me tell you what that is. That is going to involve three different things. First of all, we have been contacted by a local school that has many, many kids that they know will not be able to have Christmas this year. And they have asked us if we would be able to provide 40 kids Christmas this year. And so we said yes. Now, let me tell you something. Unless you help, we can't do it. And so starting in the next week or two, there are going to be names, just like we used to do with Angel Tree. And the thing, this, is, this is like Angel Tree, except this is in local Goodlettsville school that people will be taking care of. And they're going to be out there, and we're going to ask you to take one of those 40 uh, children and provide Christmas for them. And we're we either right before that or on that date, we're going to ask you to bring that here and we'll get that to where it goes. Also on December 14th, we're going to take up food. Like food. Many of you know that food banks are all around here. Gillisville Help Center, Second Harvest in Nashville get just blitzed around this time of year. So I'm going to ask every family, every person to bring at least two or three non-perishable food items. And we're going to load that up on December 15th and we're going to take it to food banks. And then also on December 14th, I'm going to ask you to give. This is not your offering. We're going to take a regular offering that day. This is above and beyond. This is an extra offering. And 100% of that offering is going to leave this building and not be used for anything around here. Some of that's going to be used as a part of our Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we do every year to support international missions. Some of that's going to be used to support state and local people that are partnering, that are doing great work in people's lives. Now, my challenge to you is this. Starting next week with the shoeboxes and then in December with those things. And let's just be honest, all right? We're not talking about huge sacrifices here. I mean, a shoebox filled with dollar store toys. Uh, I could challenge you to clean out your pantry and bring it, and we'd have a lot more than two or three non-perishable food items. Amen? Some of you have thrown away two or three in the last week because you didn't use them when the date was gone. Some of you are like, I don't throw away if the date's gone. We just eat it and take our chances. Don't bring out-of-date food for the food bank, all right? And we're talking about extra giving. In fact, what I'd really love is for us to collect somewhere around an extra week of offering to be able to give to Lottie Moon and to local partners. That's all happening December 14th. We're not going to talk about it tons between now and then. We're going to talk about it next week, and then I'll mention it each week. But it's coming. And I just want you... Scripture verse we've used all week comes from 1 Timothy. It says, tell those who are rich in this world to not be haughty, to not place their trust in their stuff, but to be rich in doing good deeds, willing and generous.
I'm asking you to show fruit of your relationship with the Lord by being good at being rich. Let's pray together.